must be exerted. Number three, take right. two. This take is Meduan uh, number three, three, take two. Three. Take three. Number two? <coughs> All right, number two. We call the other one number two. No. All right, number two, take three. How shall the new environment be programmed now that we have become so involved with each other? Now that all of us have become the unwitting workforce for social change. You never knew what was coming next. With kiss, 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 kiss cross, 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 kiss, kiss, cross. cross. We are only beginning to realize what a tiny slice of human possibility we now educate. The total environment is now the great teacher. Training will be more concerned with training the senses and perceptions than with stuffing brains. Studies show a high correlation between sensory bodily development, now largely neglected, and intelligence. There's a world of difference between the modern home environment of integrated electric information and the classroom. Britain formally applies for membership in the market. Westmoreland right, gets control of the pacification uh, program uh, in Vietnam. We have no art. We do everything as well as we can. A strange bond often exists among anti-social types in their power to see environments as they really are. The poet, the artist, whoever sharpens our perception tends to be anti-social, rarely well-adjusted. He cannot go along with currents and trends. Because when my act first caught on, I had offered every major publishing house to do a book well, on anything at all. Sing for themselves. That's not so right. Really That's exploiting. Footnotes derived from the visual arts, from graphic arts, from sound, from music. The artist, the anima of society, points out things that many people would prefer not to notice. Art is anything you can get away with. The envelope, please. Next is my page 19, speech one, innumerable confusion. I don't think you can uh, quite <clears throat> get away with that phrase. <clears throat> innumerable is, uh, suggests numbers. Confusion is singular. I don't know. Do you like the phrase innumerable confusion? Innumerable confusion. It's part of it. It's part of what? It's part of the confusion. Ah, okay. You're miming. Miming over yeah. Innumerable confusion and a profound feeling of despair invariably emerge in periods of great technological and cultural traditions such as our own. Our age of anxiety is in great part the result of trying to do today's job with yesterday's tools, with yesterday's concepts, with yesterday's ideals. And now a word from our sponsor. The young person today is a data processor on a very large scale. She dies silently, on no use as victims. 
nose counting, a cherished part of the 18th century fragmentation process, has rapidly become a cumbersome and ineffectual form of social assessment in an environment of instant electric speech. The public, in the sense of a great consensus of separate and distinct viewpoints, is finished. I must have been delirious, for I even sought amusement in speculating upon the relative velocities of their several descents toward the foam below. Unhappily, we confront this new situation with an enormous backlog of outdated mental and psychological responses. The new but that's what makes America great. A backlog of outdated responses. And indeed... The world in general is chock full of them. But we'll have none of it here on Gray Matters, your weekly media and current events analysis program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'm going to do a solo program today. <coughs> Senior partner on the show, Dick Whaley, is uh, celebrating some family festivities and no doubt taking advantage of the glorious weather we are enjoying here uh, throughout the Midwest on this Memorial Day weekend. Some weeks ago, months ago actually by now, one of America's great writers of the 20th century, Kurt Vonnegut, passed away. Somewhat ironically, he did not die of a smoking-related complaint, which of course he prognosticated upon uh, consistently throughout his texts. Uh... That's not to say that that's necessarily a good thing. We're all going to die somehow, some way, someday. And so there's really no need to get excited about uh, the actual manner in which it occurs. But <clears throat> at the time, you know, he was an old man, uh, had, been, uh, had a very active and full career, and so it didn't quite have the emotional impact that, uh, say, for example, the murder of John Lennon did for myself and probably for numerous others as well. And yet on further reflection, Kurt Vonnegut uh, is such a significant figure, not only in American letters, but I think in the formation of young minds of uh, several generations that uh, his departure from this mortal coil um, is indeed a significant one. And we see yet again another example of the sort of passing of the guard speaking with a friend of mine the other day that as each subsequent generation comes up and with its own new experiences you know decodes the world uh, as best it can for its own mindset and time frame it really falls upon the older generations to inform as best they can the younger folks uh, what happened before them what transpired for example in their own times and well, this uh, is an ongoing process that, of course, is uh, at the heart of education itself. And even in institutions such as WCBN, we've got the old, uh, old guard, the uh, townies and DJs who've been around for years. And it's all a mutual uh, learning uh, situation where uh, us older folks learn as much from the younger generations as we are able to share with them. All that having been said, however, uh, I've decided to pretty much devote today's program to uh, Kurt Vonnegut. I looked in vain for a couple of recordings I have at home of uh, Vonnegut himself reading excerpts from uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of Champions, probably two of his 
more significant works, <clears throat> but unable to uh, find them amongst the piles of vinyl floating around the house. I do have some text and indeed a recording that we will hear from as well. A uh, very interesting piece, and it's essentially a humanist requiem entitled Stones, Time, and Elements. Music by Edgar David Grena, and text by Kurt Vonnegut, who is in fact also the reader here, accompanied as he is by the Manhattan Chamber Orchestra. And we'll probably move into that momentarily. But I would first like to read a short excerpt from a collection called Conversations with Kurt Vonnegut, edited by William Allen, in which he talks a little bit about the bombing of Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden, a uh, brutal napalm attack uh, essentially orchestrated uh, by, or uh, planned, uh, that is, by uh, British forces as a sort of a retribution for the Equally needless, though somewhat less uh, in number, body count-wise, uh, bombing of Coventry. Of course, World War II is the uh, conflict in which uh, the bombing of civilian populations became the norm, something that sadly has continued, despite all the language that we hear uh, uttered from politicians about precision bombing and smart weapons and so forth. <clears throat> Civilians are still very much part of the devastation package in any modern conflict. But this is from a 1973 interview uh, that Kurt Vonnegut uh, did with Playboy magazine. Questions asked by David Standish. We'll just read a little bit of this here. Question is asked, Slaughterhouse-Five is mainly about the Dresden firebombing, which you went through during World War II. What made you decide to write it in a science fiction mode? These things are intuitive. There's never any strategy meeting about what you're going to do. You just come to work every day. And the science fiction passages in Slaughterhouse-Five are just like the clowns in Shakespeare. When Shakespeare figured the audience had had enough of the heavy stuff, he'd let up a little, bring on a clown or a foolish innkeeper or something like that before he'd become serious again. And trips to other planets, science fiction of an obviously kidding sort, is equivalent to bringing on the clowns every so often to lighten things up. While you were writing Slaughterhouse-Five, did you try at all to deal with the subject on a purely realistic level? I couldn't, because the book was largely a found object. It was what was in my head, and I was able to get it out, but one of the characteristics about this object was that there was a complete blank where the bombing of Dresden took place, because I don't remember. And I looked up several of my war buddies, and they didn't remember either. They didn't want to talk about it. There was a complete forgetting of what it was like. There were all kinds of information surrounding the event, but as far as my memory bank was concerned, the center had been pulled right out of the story. There was nothing up there to be recovered, or in the heads of my friends, either. Even if you don't remember it, the question is asked, did the experience of being interned and bombed in Dresden change you in any way? No. I suppose you'd think so, because that's the cliché. The importance of Dresden in my life has been considerably exaggerated because my book about it became a bestseller. If the book hadn't been a bestseller, it would seem like a very minor experience in my life. And I don't think people's lives are changed by short-term events like that. Dresden was astonishing, but experiences can be astonishing without changing you. It did make me feel sort of like I'd paid my dues, being as hungry as I was for as long as I was in a prison camp. Hunger is a normal experience for a human being, but not for a middle-class American human being. I was phenomenally hungry for about six months. 
there wasn't nearly enough to eat. And this is the sensational from my point of view, because I would never have had this experience otherwise. Other people get hit by taxi cabs or have a lung collapse or something like that, and it's impressive. But only being hungry for a while, my weight was 175 when I went into the Army and 134 when I got out of the POW camp, so we really were hungry. Just leads to smugness now. I stood it. But one of my kids, about the same age I was, got tuberculosis in the Peace Corps and had to lie still in a hospital ward for a year. And the only people who get tuberculosis in our society now are old people, skid row people. So he had to lie there as a young man for a year, motionless, surrounded by old alcoholics. And this did change him. It gave him something to meditate about. What did your experience in Dresden give you to meditate about? My closest friend is Bernard V. O'Hare. He's a lawyer in Pennsylvania, and he's in the book. I asked him what the experience of Dresden meant to him, and he said he no longer believed what his government said. Our generation did believe what its government said, because we weren't lied to very much. One reason we weren't lied to was that there wasn't a war going on in our childhood, and so essentially we were told the truth. There was no reason for our government to lie very elaborately to us, but a government at war does become a lying government for many reasons. One reason is to confuse the enemy. When we went into the war, we felt our government was a respecter of life, careful about not injuring civilians and that sort of thing. Well, Dresden had no tactical value. It was a city of civilians. Yet the Allies bombed it until it burned and melted. And then they lied about it. All that was startling to us. But it doesn't startle anybody now. What startled everybody about the carpet bombing of Hanoi wasn't the bombing. It was that it took place at Christmas. That's what everyone was outraged about. Kurt Vonnegut in 1973 speaking to Playboy magazine. In a collection of essays uh, that he gathered together, entitled Wampeters, Foma, and Granfaloons, which originally appeared in 1974, I believe, there are a number of short observations, some random things, uh, some of which had a profound impact on me as a sixth-grade student. I was lucky enough to be introduced to the works of Kurt Vonnegut at a somewhat early age, I guess, rather early indeed, of fifth grade. I come from a large family in Jackson. My father's the second oldest of ten, and so therefore his youngest siblings were quite close in age to me, and so my uncles and aunts, essentially, were really more like uh, big brothers and sisters at that end of the extreme. And so uh, I was passed off copies of books and records and so forth, um, that really, I think, led to uh, the sort of intellectual development that has essentially made me the person I am today. And I'm very happy to be that person. And uh, Vonnegut's a big part of that. And I would like to read a brief passage from an essay in this collection entitled, In a Manner That Must Shame God Himself. And uh, we'll just read a little bit about this uh, response to the contemporary American political scene. This is uh, vintage 1972 stuff. <clears throat> if I were a visitor from another planet, I would say things like this about the people of the United States in 1972. These are ferocious creatures who imagine that they are gentle. They have experimented in very recent times with slavery and genocide. 
I would call the robbing and killing of American Indians genocide. I would say the two real political parties in America are the winners and the losers. The people do not acknowledge this. They claim membership in two imaginary parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, instead. Both imaginary parties are bossed by winners. When Republicans battle Democrats, this much is certain. Winners will win. The Democrats have been the larger party in the past because their leaders have not been as openly contemptuous of losers as the Republicans have been. Losers can join imaginary parties. Losers can vote. Losers have thousands of religion, often of the bleeding heart variety, I would go on. The single religion of the winners is a harsh interpretation of Darwinism, which argues that it is the will of the universe that only the fittest should survive. The most pitiless Darwinists are attracted to the Republican Party, which regularly purges itself of suspected bleeding hearts. It is in the process now of isolating and ejecting Representative Paul McCloskey, for instance, who has openly raged and even wept about the killing and maiming of Vietnamese. The Vietnamese are impoverished farmers far, far away. The winners in America have had them bombed and shot day in and day out for years on end. This is not madness or foolishness, as some people have suggested. It is a way for the winners to learn how to be pitiless. They understand that the material resources of the planet are almost exhausted, and that pity will soon be a form of suicide. The winners are rehearsing for things to come. There is a witty winner, a millionaire named William F. Buckley Jr., I would go on, who appears regularly in the newspapers and on television. He bickers amusingly with people who think that winners should help the losers more than they do. He has a nearly permanent and always patronizing rictus when debating. As a visitor from another planet, I would have nothing to lose socially in supposing that Buckley himself did not know the secret message of his smile. I would then guess at the message. Yes, oh yes, my dear man, I understand what you have said so clumsily. But you know in your heart what every winner knows, that one must behave heartlessly towards losers if one hopes to survive. That may not really be the message in the Buckley smile, but I guarantee you that it was the monolithic belief that underlay the Republican National Convention in Miami Beach, Florida, in 1972. All the rest was hokum. And he proceeds to uh, talk about this political convention and the celebrities in attendance with uh, whom he mingled and ends up talking about President Nixon himself at the end of this piece. And, of course, the good Dr. Kissinger. If I can find this passage, we'll move to it ever so quickly. Here we go. It was perhaps unkind of me to associate Dr. Kissinger with evil. That is no casual thing to do in a country as deeply religious as ours is. As the mayor of Birmingham told us about our nation on Sunday, with all our labors, success or failure, now and in the years ahead, it will, God willing, always be one nation under God. Dr. Kissinger, after all, has been a healer of terrible wounds between the mightiest nations of all. But the administration he serves is bad news for those nations that are feeble, or what the King James Version of the Bible calls the meek. The super-realtors, 
that is American foreign policy, with Dr. Kissinger as their representative, have worked out crude arrangements with the few other truly terrifying powers of the planet as to what can be done and what must not be done with the real estate of the meek. The Nixon-Kissinger scheme, the winner's scheme, the Neo-Metternichian scheme for lasting world peace is simple. Its basic axiom is to be followed by individuals as well as great nations, by losers and winners alike. We have demonstrated the workability of the axiom in Vietnam, in Bangladesh, in Biafra, in Palestinian refugee camps, in our own ghettos, in our migrant labor camps, on our Indian reservations, in our institutions for the defective and the deformed and the aged. This is it. Ignore agony. And, of course, <laughs> the irony, the sarcasm, the satire rings through. It's uh, a difficult thing to ignore agony, and when you get to the point where you can do it, you've pretty satisfactorily or sufficiently uh, dehumanized yourself. And so, on that note, we will shift gears now to this recording of a piece entitled Stones, Time, and Elements, A Humanist Requiem. Text by Kurt Vonnegut, read by Kurt Vonnegut, and music composed by Edgar David Grana, performed by the Manhattan Chamber Orchestra. Join us again next week on Gray Matters for a more traditional program in which brain damage awards and all sorts of... Uh, Verbal retribution for the uh, powers that be will be administered. And also stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling uh, coming up after this program somewhere shortly after 7, I would assume. My name is Jim Dwyer. Thanks for listening to WCBN on this Memorial Day. It seems very fitting to play a Requiem recording and at that a humanist Requiem on Memorial Day. So enjoy your evening and here you go. Rest eternal, grant them, O cosmos, and let not light disturb their sleep. A hymn is not to thee, O flying stones, nor a vow, unratified in a dream in Jerusalem. Yet I pray, from thee all flesh did come. Time, have mercy upon us. Elements, have mercy upon us. Rest eternal, grant them, O cosmos, and let not light disturb their sleep. A day of wrath that day. We shall dissolve the world into glowing ashes as attested by our weapons for wars in the names of God's unknowable. Let not the ashes tremble, though some judge should come to examine all in some strict justice. Let no trumpet's wondrous call sounding abroad in tombs throughout the world drive ashes toward any throne. Let ashes remain as ashes Though someone to approach in terror, as in life some judge or throne, must a written book be brought forth in which everything is contained from which the ashes shall be judged? Then, when some judge is seated and whatever is hidden is made known, let him understand that naught hath gone unpunished. Let death and nature say what they will when ashes sleep like ashes when commanded to give answers to some judge. What shall I, a wretch, say at that time? What advocate shall I entreat when even the righteous have been damned by wars in the names of God's unknowable? 
structure of awesome majesty, donor of sleep or wakefulness, thou fount of random pain or pity, give me the innocence of sleep. Gambler with flesh, thou art the reason for my journey. Do not cast the dice again on that day. My wild and loving brother did try to redeem me by suffering death on the cross. Let not such toil have been in vain. I groan like one condemned. My face blushes for my sins. Spare a supplicant from more such wakefulness. Thou who didst neither condemn nor forgive Mary Magdalene and the robber on the cross has given me hope as well. My prayers are unheard, but thy sublime indifference will ensure that I burn not in some everlasting fire. Give me a place among the sheep and the goats, separating none from none, leaving our mingled ashes where they fall. That day will be one of comical disappointment to any who hope to see rise again from the embers the guilty to be judged. When the litigious have been confounded and sentenced to comical disappointment, count me among the gratified. That day will be one of comical disappointment on which shall rise again from the embers no guilty man or woman or child to be judged. I depend on you to spare them O stones, O time, O elements, grant them rest. Amen. O cosmos, O structure of awesome majesty, deliver without exception the souls of the departed from the pains of hell and from the bottomless pit. Save them from the lion's jaws, that hell may not engulf them, that they may only fall into darkness which is still and sweet. Dazzle them not with light promised in a dream to Abraham and his seeds. Sacrifices and prayers of praise to thee, O cosmos, we have offered for millennia. Reward us with thy continued indifference to the destinies past death of those whose souls whom on this day we commemorate. Life was sport enough. Allow them to pass from death into sleep. Holy, holy, holy time and elements, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna in the highest, humbled and amazed are he and she who have experienced life. Hosanna in the highest, a day of wrath that day. We shall dissolve the world into glowing ashes as attested by our weapons for wars in the names of gods unknowable. Thus I pray to thee from whom all flesh did come Merciful time, who buries the sins of the world, grant them rest. Merciful elements, from whom a new world can be constructed, moist, blue, green, and fertile, grant them eternal rest. Let not eternal light disturb their sleep, O cosmos, for thou art merciful. Deliver me, O cosmos, from everlasting wakefulness on that dread day when the heavens and earth shall quake and we shall dissolve the world into glowing ashes in the names of gods unknowable. I am seized with trembling, and I am afraid until the day of reckoning shall arrive and the wrath to come. Hence I pray, deliver me, O cosmos, from everlasting wakefulness on that day of wrath, calamity, and misery.
Rest eternal grant them, O cosmos, and let not light perpetual disturb their harmless sleep. Thank you, Kurt Vonnegut.
Hey, baby, this is the Wolfman. I'm coming to you from the studios down here at WCBN, baby. WCBN FM and I'm a free farm radio, baby. Squeeze my knobs. Ah!